welcome. Happy New Year. Happy 2016. It's a year of church history. Uh, we will talk today about, um, last week we were going to, we had two things we were going to talk about. The early church apostolic fathers, which we got through. And then we introduced the topic of the apologists of the ancient church. And today we're going to kind of go over that just briefly and then talk about um, a couple of important apologetic works and people um, from the era of the Christian apologists. And then we're going to delve into three ancient heresies that come about in the early church. We're going to talk about those and that'll set the stage for the church's response um, to these heresies that we'll talk about next week or the week after. Or whenever I get a chance to get to the week after that, I'll talk about those. So Let's, uh, if you could, look at Jude, chapter 1, verses 1 and only. I'm going to read several verses from here. We're going to read 3 and 4, and then we're going to skip over and read 17 through 23. All right, so verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only hope of glory. And then verse 7, we'll just stop there. You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, void of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy and fear, hating even some who are called such. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to study of your the history of your church, Lord, we um, give you praise because you have faithfully built your church, Lord. Um, additionally to building your church, Lord, part of that, Lord, you've protected your church. Lord, you've protected your church from heresies and error coming into it. Um, without the main foundation for that, we praise you that your grace has sustained your church. Lord, even so, as we consider heresies that have attempted to overstate the true gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, we take them away as error, and we see you as great sustainer of it, as great forgiver of it, author of it. So, Lord, we give you praise today. Lord, as we look into our scene, we ask that you would bless us as we take the good of your people and use them for your glory. In Jesus' name, Okay, so last week I introduced the topic of the apologists, just so you understand the idea of the Christian apologists are those that are in the history of the church early on, they were giving a defense for the Christian faith. Um, so you kind of you kind of understand that when someone's giving a defense, they're giving an apology. Someone is trying to say, hey, what are the works of the apology of Socrates? Defense of how Socrates was just and correctly, unjustly. So we have a 
group of people, theologians and leaders within the church in the ancient times that come on the scene that are defending the Christian faith. And their primary objective, first, is to make an argument um, about why the Christian faith is valid compared to what the enemies of the Christian faith would think about Christian faith. I've kind of said this over and over the last few weeks, but accusations were coming up uh, towards the Christians that they were cannibalists, um, they were anti um, the empire, the Roman Empire, which was affecting the Roman Empire and stability, which was strong. Um, various accusations from different areas of uh, culture and society were saying that Christ- the Christian faith um, was not legitimate. And these guys came on the scene to talk about why it was legitimate. So as Christianity was growing in popularity, including in cultured circles, these guys were the defenders of the faith. Uh, They provided responses to the incorrect accusations against the Christian faith with the goal that both the gospel would gain greater traction in society, and secondly, that the persecution of Christians would cease. Um, Their goal was that less Christians would be killed because of their faith um, as Christianity became more accepted in culture. Uh, These guys waged war against both Jewish and Greek philosophers of the time, who challenged Christianity on the intellectual level. So that so you have this Roman aspect of um, persecution and the Roman aspect of ostracizing Christians on the outskirts of society. But you have this other side that's the, the philosophers of the age, the, um, the, both the Jewish and the Greek philosophers of the age were segmenting them saying, hey, these Christians are anti-intellectuals. And these apologists of the day are presenting a case that, no, Christianity is a reasonable faith, and it's also not the things that the Roman Empire was teaching. So those are kind of two fronts that are kind of battling. They argued that Christianity was a true philosophy in comparison with which other philosophies were either false or shadows of the truth that failed to strike uh, home with Jewish readers. Uh, the, the many of these guys uh, from the early church spent about 150 forgot to make extra copies of the timeline, but anybody brought their timeline back from week one, you get a special bonus. So I know that's going to get those coffee in the back there. Um, so from 150 to 250 is about the time these apologists come on the scene. Camilla is back there now. Thank you, Zach. And their responses were against not only uh, these um, cultural arguments against Christianity, but also against some of the heresies that were rising in the day, one of which was Thomism, Thomism of Aquinas. Um, They fought um, three different intellectual battles. They fought the religious religious, um, aspects of the Jews, the pagan in in Rome, and then the philosophers in Greece. What we're going to look at is one specific work that we do not know who wrote it, but we still have it from around 150, and we're going to talk about one specific apologist, and that's Justin Adams, Justin of Aquinas, Justin the Arian. But the first um, thing we'll talk about is a letter. It's called To Diagnetus, and it was written in 150 in Rome. It's written by, like I said, an unknown author, To Diagnetus, who was a heathen who wanted to know more about the Christian faith. So he's a Roman aristocrat, um, and unlike previous works, so we talked about some of the initial works that were done by the Apostolic Fathers kind of being letters explanatory in nature about how the church was going to last. They weren't necessarily great um, works of literature. Um, they weren't great works of, 
seems to be still the case. This one, however, is uh, considered to be great literature. It is from the pen of someone who has a great grasp on the culture of the day. So this person obviously could live within the culture of the day and be a Christian if he could use his Christian faith to influence how we impact this culture. That's his argument diagnetically. Hey, that's what Christianity is. It's not something that is that um, is uh, outside the scope of church life. You can't. If you are a Christian, you're not ostracized from society if you can have success in that sense. All right. Um, this is 12 chapters long and includes substantial teaching on Jesus, his work, and men's condition. So we start seeing some systematic theology being studied and vetted and diagnetics. Um, and really, this work kind of bridges kind of the first of these systematic theological works. It kind of bridges that gap from the apostolic fathers um, to the to the apostles. So we have those different levels of church fathers. The apostolic fathers are the ones that come right after the apostles, some of them actually disciples of John and Peter and other disciples. And then you have these guys in between, the Apollos and Peter. So there's a bridge between the, those apostolic fathers and the Apollos. Um, it's a more reflective theology rooted in Paul. And then some historians ascribe his writings to Justin Martyr, but there is not sufficient evidence for us to say that. So we'll leave it with uh, to Justin Martyr. So that's the first letter that kind of is making a defense for the Christian faith that has been, been recognized as So the, the, the main apologist I wanted to talk about today was a guy named Justin Martyr. Um, just a little brief biographical information about Justin Martyr. He was a well-to-do youth who bounced from various schools of philosophy, uh, from the Stoics, um, where they taught materialistic pantheism, which was God, the divine essence was in everything. He went from the Stoics to Aristotle, uh, who believed that man can do good without supernatural involvement. And then he went to the school of Plato, which said that there's one supreme form or good idea, and then everything is just like a shadow of the truth. So he kind of was a cultured person in the sense that he went from one different school of philosophy to another, trying to search out and find truth. Someone shared the gospel with him, and he began to study the Old Testament and search for truth. And after reading the prophets, he said, My spirit was immediately set on fire, and an affection for the prophets those who are friends of Christ took root. And as he's reading God's word, the prophets are recalling what Jesus claimed He established a school in Rome where he taught Christ as the perfect philosophy. His primary works were two apologies. Both of them he dedicated to emperors of the time. One was to Antonius Pius, who received it well. And the second was Marcus Aurelius, who was Jewish at the time, one of the three great local persecutions of the Christians in Rome. He didn't find it as good as Pius did because he had Justin Martyr killed and beheaded and he presented the case. So he's the first real systematic theologian of the church age, Justin Martyr. So in his works, specifically in the first apology, he gives a defense of the Christians not being a threat to the empire. So he says Christians are not going to do things under the power of the empire like they did. He 
Assyria alone possessed their fruit. He contrasted Jesus to the Roman Empire's years of pagan gods. He said that Christianity was intellectually coherent. It was both theological and philosophical more than any other belief system. So he kind of takes, he's this studious person that takes the Stoics and Plato and Aristotle, who are the masters of the age, and compares Christianity to those things and compares does the same thing in his second apology. Um, he states that hostility towards Christians was out of ignorance and prejudice. That's kind of a, that might be why Marcus Aurelius had him killed. Um, he calls those that are uh, hostile to Christians ignorant and prejudiced, prejudicial. And he felt compelled to do that so the group of Christians were killed because of his faith. Um, he was a probably stereotype Marcus Aurelius a little bit. also wrote a dialogue to, he had a dialogue with a guy named Trypho, a Jew, and um, he actually wrote correspondences with Trypho where he responded to Jewish attacks on the Christian community and then went to Israel and decided that while Christianity was the fulfillment of the Jewish religion, uh, this debate occurred in Ephesus and was courteous in nature but it shows that Christianity had many philosophical claims, but it had none. Um, he also argued for uh, the Greek logos, uh, which Jewish philosophers believe is the creative source, source of all wisdom, and we delve into that when we talk about John 1. He said Christ was the fulfillment of the logos. He is the full re- revelation of the perfect law. He's the wisdom of God. He's Emmanuel, God with us, the culmination of all parts of creation. really, Justin kind of takes this whole view of these philosophies and compares Christianity in light of those things, in light of the fulfillment of the semi-truth of the Jewish philosophies. So he kind of makes that defense. Other guys were on the scene that do that as well at that time. Um, Several of them include Irenaeus, Tatian, Aristides, a man by the name of Theophilus, and one of these last names. Those guys are all on the scene defending Christianity against the accusations that Jesus had. So we're going to be careful with um, that description. So Christianity, their goal is to say Christianity should have a seat at the table. It's not this fringe religion, but it should be involved in the philosophical debate of the day. However, in doing so, um, ancient heresies kind of arise as well that they'll cover today. So we'll talk about three different heresies today that kind of arose, and part of this is trying to melt Christianity with philosophies of the day. Uh, We'll talk about three today. I'll give a brief introduction in general about some of these heresies, but the three, just so you know where we're going, and this is the primary bulk of our teachings today, are Gnosticism. The second one would be, what else is there? Yes, uh, Marcionism, or just the teachings of Marcion, and then the third is Montanism. So each of these things these three things, these heresies infiltrated the church early on and the church had to respond to that. What I think is important to understand here is giving to threads of these heresies presented in the early church is different from today. Uh, As you start thinking about, there are probably things that come to your mind, certain aspects of actually Protestantism or Catholicism, Reformation, and also things that the church then pulled from as well. 
So one historian has called the second and third centuries, so uh, late 100s into the 200s AD, as a time of productive confusion. Um, so it was a time when many heresies came on the scene. Heresy has a pretty uh, negative connotation today, right? Um, but initially the word heresy meant opinion or party or group. Now we've adopted more of a study of ancient areas, but I know that some of you work in that field. It was a time at this time of the history of the church where there was a splitting of the church into some orthodox Jews and heretics. And I thought orthodox, orthodoxy means right belief, okay? Right belief or faith in Christ. Some people in the historical realm, if you're studying this, will argue that heresies developed and then orthodox views developed. We would disagree with that. Uh, the orthodoxy becomes God's word, but what happens is heresies come into play, and then orthodox comes in and kind of underlines and defines Christian uh, doctrine. So there's a, we have God's word, we have heresies, and then we have orthodox Christianity. Okay, and just to understand how the flow of history works. Uh, the early church historian Eusebius says, orthodoxy does not have a history. Kind of agreeing with that, right? It is true eternally. Heresy has a history, having, or, having arisen at particular times through particular people. He also said, heresy is the work of the devil to darken the radiance of universal salvation. Augustine says, so he kind of, Augustine sees purpose there behind heresy, or what does purpose have to do with what's going on here? And he says, the rejection of heretics brings into relief what God's church holds and what sound doctrine these heresies, as they're trying to attack the foundation of the church, also they undergird the church in the sense that now we're strengthening what our orthodoxy is and what we believe about God and what the scriptures say about who Jesus is primarily, um, and that gives us new steadfast ground. So orthodoxy comes in to clearly and radically explain the teachings of Christ for us today. That's a little introduction for the 100s and 200s the uh, heresies that came on the Christian stage. So the first one we'll talk about is Gnosticism. So Gnosticism was prevalent in other cultures. It was, was not uh, unique only to Christianity. It was just pervasive throughout the Greco-Roman world, and in its various forms, it was dangerous to Christianity. So it's kind of like, it's kind of like one universal view that, so if you think of people outside the church, they would appeal to science scriptures basis for their proof and their claims of virtue thought process or something like that gnosticism of the day was that authoritative science was authoritative right or uh, academia appealed to science but gnosticism had a dangerous way back then so it was it was syncretistic that's an interesting word in nature this means that it combined elements of several different religions to create a comprehensive system its emphasis was on love of knowledge, and primarily what it did was devalue all that was physical, including the human body. So what a Gnostic would say is, spirit is good, body is bad, or anything in the spiritual realm is good, anything that has matter physically is bad, okay? So that's the idea behind Gnosticism. The ancient church writer Irenaeus said, Gnosticism is like the mythological hydra. Hydra is the, what's the snake that comes back, chop off its head, and then like two heads.
had come back, but every time like the church would have something going on, they'd discover how to get to the church. Nostradamus is a big religious thing that's impacted all of culture, not just Christianity, but there are some that become what we would call Christian Gnostics. They actually were thought that as Christian Gnostics. So these are the people that attempted to bring Gnostic teachings into the church, and they were identified by several beliefs. We kind of touched on some of them. One is dualism, and that's the idea that there are two equal gods, two equal powers, or Two powers of similar status, not one. There's kind of an evil God, what, what, you know, well, I don't know if there's a, evil God is body and the physical and the matter, and then there's a good God who is all things spiritual, right? There's two competing forces in the universe, according to those that hold to dualism. So they would believe that the, the evil God over here created the universe, universe or that he hates the universe, matter, and physical, or they hated that he did that. The evil God did that, according to that deal. And the Christian Gnostics would say this. Make sure there's Christian Gnostics. That means not me, right? Not me quoting. Now, quoting them, the God of the Old Testament was the evil God, right, in their view. He created the world and then sin, but he created man with a minor part Christ came as a servant of the good God to help save us from the hero world into the higher truth. So we've got these divergent gods, and it's very um, difficult to talk about that, frankly. But that's dualism. The second thing they would hold to is docetism, and this is like their view of Christology. So what do they believe about Jesus? They believe that Jesus was only a spirit and not a body. He didn't really exist as a spirit. His body was just a form, and his spirit dwelt. But he actually had a physical body. We know that. This is what they say. They believe that Jesus' crucifixion didn't do anything. Um, he came to teach us how to approach him on the spiritual body. So the gospel really impacted by that belief. They believe that salvation is by knowledge and not by faith. So really, a couple things. Monotheism is completely attacked here, because there's two gods, right? Another thing is the doctrine of Jesus, um, his divinity and his humanity are completely um, thwarted here by the view of Christianity. And at this point, just think about this, this church is growing and growing and growing, and these powerful philosophies come on the stage. And you think about it, okay, now this sounds a lot like the stuff that's going on in the culture. Each of the doctrines look something like what we believe. So it's not like that these guys aren't holding a New Testament, okay? Remember that? They have teaching that's been passed down to the apostles. Certain letters are within their churches, so they don't have like a, a whole New Testament to compare what these people might be teaching to them. So I want to be careful that we don't judge our um, spiritual ancestors too easily and overcome some of them by secularism like this. However, it was still there. So they believe in dualism and docetism. They believe that salvation was by knowledge, not by faith. There's ever pursuit of knowledge and growth. Um, some of these Gnostics, this is the range of perspective they had. They believe in Greek words of asceticism. So asceticism is where you're putting off um, sinful habits. It's 
of the body's bad. We don't know what's happening spiritually or what's going on in the body. We're going to speak out something that's spiritual. And we kind of think that's kind of what what people are thinking or what Jesus said. Then you had some that were libertines, the idea of libertines, which is like, hey, let's, you know, the body's bad, let the body do its thing. You can't control the body, it's all just bad, and just go ahead and sin. So you had different perspectives, you had rigid asceticism, and then uh, libertines, which is this group. You guys ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? Um, the Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic work written in probably the third century it was used to provide some legitimate gnostics obviously it was denied but several proof of gnosticism as a whole including the gospel of thomas denied several proof of existence for his incarnation and resurrection resurrection obviously the whole body doesn't die the body's body resurrected incarnation jesus comprehends the moment is done by this evil God, the God of the Old Testament, that were accused in the Gospel of Thomas by Paul as well. One of the Gnostics who tried to kind of Christianize uh, Gnosticism even further was a man by the name of Marcion, and he comes on the scene in about 100. He lives till 165. His um, cult was called the Marcionism, obviously. Founded, he actually founded a legitimate church that exi- actually existed for several centuries. It was almost like a superstitious church with this group of not only did it establish a church, it had leadership, it had its own private uh, relationship with God and all that. But he, Marcion had much Gnostic influence. A couple things about him. Marcion was anti-Jewish. Um, he, so this, this, this evil God over here, he called that God the Old Testament God. He actually referred to that God as Jehovah. He said, we create evil in the evil world against the desires of the true God who only wanted to do, only wanted there to be a spiritual world. So his philosophy of material versus spiritual kingdom, right? He says Jehovah was responsible for writing the Old Testament. He viewed the Old Testament Jehovah God as vindictive and arbitrarily just because he chose one people group over another. So that caused Marcion to write anti-Jewish. He also was dualistic. The true God is not vindictive in his beliefs, but loving. He seeks not to be obeyed, but to be loved. The true God is the Father of Jesus. He was sent to save us from Jehovah's world. Um, and then and eventually there would be no judgment. The true God would forgive us all. Irenaeus, who was kind of a church, early church father of this time, one of the um, uh, one of the apologists, he argues against Marcion. He says, by having two gods, Marcion really has no God. Marcion divides God into two and says Christians can only make one. Arguing against the dualistic nature of God as our Father. Marcion also believed that matter was evil. Because of this, Jesus was not really born of Mary. 
for that. He said that Jesus is just the spirit of a grown man. What authority does he have? Where does he get that? Uh, So Jesus did not have a human birth. He believed he also existed without a genuine material body. So there's clearly stuff that Jesus believed. You can think about it. Um, so, so how did he come up with this? Well, he creates his own ideas, one of which includes the Gospel of Luke. So he takes the Gospel of Luke, V1 through 431, and he encapsulates all that. So that's like what we just talked about, all of the Christian tales, the incarnation, God with us. And this is how he describes it in his version of the Gospel of Luke. In the 15th year of Tiberius, Jesus came down from heaven Tertullian, one of the first fathers who preached um, a couple, a hundred years later at the Cathedral of Marcion, says, and yet, O Marcion, in what way were you born in heaven? Like, how did you grow up? What is this, Sheol? How can you come up with all this? Uh, The biggest judgment we can lay on Marcion's point of view is this one. Lord, did you bench his ideas? Marcion develops his own huge schism. authoritative books, and he creates his own canon. So, the church recognized already, in some way, what the authoritative books were. The church doesn't give, the church proper doesn't give authority to the books. The books have authority on their own, um, as they were inspired by the apostolic writers, yet they were not officially confirmed books by the church. So, Marcion develops his own so, I always like to think about this, but Thomas Jefferson, industrial president, took the entire New Testament. You guys know that he removed nearly any reference to miracles. Things that he didn't agree with, things that he believed were not rational. And some of that is bad. So, what did he accept as truly part of his smaller New Testament than we have. He accepted one gospel, the gospel of Luke, which was written according to what he believed it should say. Uh, So he took out, obviously, major chunks of it. So the gospel of Luke only. Matthew, Mark, and John as too many Jewish references to our Jesus. He also believed that Paul's ten epistles were part of his his writing. Most of Luke and all said that all the other New Testament books were plagued by Jewish abuse. So, do you think Jewish folks in the Old Testament and Paul's writing, he didn't like those either. Uh, He claimed that those were added um, by Judaizers trying to infiltrate the true scriptures, which will subvert the true message of Christianity. So, it wasn't that surprising. 
that by developing his hands, Marcion caused the church to investigate what it believed to be the truth. So that's the most important source of faith, that the church responds with Those that defend the gospel of Thomas would say the gospel of Thomas has as equal authority as the other gospels. Why didn't Marcion include it on his list? Marcion had his gospel of Thomas, but it anticipated Thomas. It looked at his anticipation for the Thomas view. Rejected or the interpreter gave that interpretation of the Speaking of interpretation, uh, we'll talk about the Gnostics, kind of a Christian Gnostic, Christian view briefly. Marcion, kind of a leader of that. And the next thing we'll talk about is Marcion. His mention had a little bit familiar tone to it, to what he said. Um, so Marcionism kind of grows out in city of Phrygia, which is Asia Minor, founded by a man named Marcion in the early 2nd century. So at this time, philosophy in the empirical kind of dialectical So prophecy is an extraordinary miracle from antiquity into biblical times. It is not evident post the apostolic age this is known as a natural miracle, but it actually occurred. Montanists, though, believed that this had occurred not because it was God's plan for those miracles and prophecies to come to pass, but rather he believed that the church had neglected the Holy Spirit. So they, the church had neglected the Holy Spirit, so there's no more prophecies, no more miracles. Almost like the church maybe wasn't getting persecuted at this time when Marcus came on the scene, but they were getting rejected. So he led a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit. He argued that this was a new age. The age of Jesus had ended, and now it was the dispensational age of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he believed that the Holy Spirit was giving new revelation, just like he did through Paul and the other apostles. Who did he give this new revelation to? His readers? Oh, he has new revelation. Only him, right? Well, two other people too. His associates, Prisca and Noah, uh, two prophets of the day. But it's interesting that, okay, it's not, it's not the age of the Holy Spirit where everybody is getting revelation from the Holy Spirit, but Montanus is. That sounds like every cult that has existed since the dawn of time, that somebody's getting special revelation <coughs> from God. I mean, it sounds like Jim Jones and David Fresh and He said things like, he and his associates said, I am the mouthpiece of God, and even said, and I quote, I am the Lord God omnipotent, reverence me. So, very uh, high view of himself. Um, there's also an emphasis, not only on uh, a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit, but also end times. So he believed in the imminent return of Christ. He thought this age of uh, the Holy Spirit was a time for Christ. Uh, to return, 
guess where he's coming to set up his kingdom? In Phrygia at Asia Minor, which, if you think about it, and again, as we've talked about over the years, that some of the aspects of the Anabaptist movement, there were some really good parts of it, but some of them were setting up, saying they were receiving special revelation from uh, the Holy Spirit, and then they were, like in 1500s and 1600s, receiving special revelation from the Holy Spirit, and flocks and flocks of people are coming to them because they know that Christ is going to return in his home city, and then they get persecuted or killed or something like that in that city. Um, And so you can see this theme throughout history that people are attracted, the leadership that says, I'm getting this revelation from the Holy Spirit or from some other source, and people are attracted to that. And so people are always doing their own things to sell So they, the, let's look at the Motmas for the Holy Spirit, end times. Um, we would say the end times ushered in at the time of Christ. We are all living in the end times. We expected his return, not that there's a time for Christ and a time for the Spirit, but all people know that we are in the end times, and we don't uh, hold to a, a separate view of the time of Christ and the Spirit. Um, they also, though, believed in a holy life and strict church discipline, so maybe that, that's good, right? There's a desire to live holy lives and believe that the church should discipline those who sin. Almost to the extent, though, that if someone sinned, that they forced them out of the church. Somehow they still had people problems. I don't know how that worked. Um, but they, they took church discipline very seriously. Because they were living in the spirit age, they believed that Christians should live a life of asceticism. So that is to refuse or not eat food. guys are really the ones that were the precursors to the church um, one of the key converts actually was Tertullian that's referenced to him a lot um, a very noted church historian and philosopher and church father and at some point Tertullian converts to Montanism which seems almost ludicrous based on what we know about Montanism he was converted around 207 AD um, but historians also say that his involvement in the Montanism movement makes him a controversial historical figure. Sorry, I'm kind of in this rant, but uh, I'm sure that was a good place. Very good Sunday. So there's some interesting aspects of, don't, there's a lot of um, historians, church historians that read Tertullian and think that that stuff is just wrong. Uh, but that's just a side note. So those are the three other ones that come on the scene as well and some are reservations uh, years later but three things kind of happen because of the church um, being faced with these three heresies number one is the canonization of scripture and that's diving into that next week what is the canonization of scripture so the canon of scripture next is the establishment of the apostles creed apostles creed is kind of a
far as Catholic preaching goes. As you can see, there are many traits of these early Puritans that perhaps we can't find in Catholic or other cultures of our day. Uh, we must agree with Solomon when he said there's nothing new under the sun. There's a couple things to draw out of this that we can pluck up there. The battle for the right belief about Christ and nature still rages. It traces back to the infancy of the church. The view of God and his manifold attributes is one that goes back to the millennia. The role of the Holy Spirit is not a new weakness that the Puritan movement chose not to admit, even though it had brought it to the light back in the 1770s. Uh, the authority of the scriptures was under attack in the second century by those who described themselves as Christians. And both Alvarez and Wittgenstein were eagerly awaiting the Reformation. So here's something for our age. It's something that's been talked about for centuries. But we kind of stand as, theolo- as people that are studying theology and studying church history with the thought that we each kind of stand on the shoulders of giants digging back to see what they've done. So we're grateful for these people that have argued against the teaching of the early church. Like the men who preach the creed, Christ preaches the orthodoxy. I think that um, listening to creeds will shape how they always come up with new ways to explain the Christian faith. I was going to conclude. I didn't read these two parts of the creed reference that were that come in through the church, people that are teaching false doctrine. We talked about that, telling people to contend for the faith. These things are worth fighting for. The one who gets offended is not my favorite class. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present us before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory Thank you.